Bibles and open up, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to continue a sermon we actually began the week before Resurrection Sunday last week, which I entitled Spirit-Filled Slavery, Spirit-Filled Slavery, Ephesians chapter 6, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. Basically, we spent a lot of time just on that first word in verse 5, and this week we're going to try to go ahead and cover, obviously, the rest of this passage as a unit. So read it silently as I read aloud. Here we see uh, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, bondservants, or that word could be slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together today to worship our risen Savior. And I pray as we look at this text today and what it means to be a faithful, spirit-filled slave of our ultimate master, who is Christ, that that would cause us to want to live in this world and obey our human masters, our human bosses, as faithful employees in a way that would magnify the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ you would gain glory for yourself and how we live on a day-to-day basis, especially at our places of work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm not sure exactly how I missed it, but all of my life I've kind of thought of the institution of slavery as being something that the Bible never really condemns and never really condones. It's just an institution that's set up and somehow we have to live by it And uh, the Bible doesn't have anything else to say than that. Well, all of that changed two weeks ago as I preached to you from both the Old and New Testament that there is a type of slavery that is sinful and wrong and goes against God's word. And there is a type of slavery that is appropriate and permitted by the Bible in a way to honor the Lord. And if you remember two weeks ago, we looked at Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, that talks about how slavery in this sense is wrong. Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And so this verse is obviously talking about if you were to steal another human being, if you were to kidnap a man or a woman out of his natural habitat and conform them into slavery, into the slave trade and sell them into slavery. The Bible calls that a sin. And in fact, the Old Testament, it would cost you your life. Not only does the Old Testament talk about a form of sinful slavery, the New Testament does the same thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, the same thing is written there. Let me just read it to you in its context. Paul writes this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. So there are six descriptors describing a list of people he's about to announce. And those descriptors, again, are 
the law, meaning the Bible, God's word, is for lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. In other words, this is unbelievers. Who is he talking about? For those who strike their fathers and mothers. For murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. Next word, enslavers. Literally translated, kidnappers. Those who would take a man or a woman or a child from their natural habitat and conform them into hard labor of any sort for selfish gain is in the Bible called sin. And so we can no longer as Christians just say, well, the Bible really never condemns slavery or condones it. It's just kind of there. No, the Bible clearly condemns all forms of sinful slavery. At the same time, the Bible does address types of slavery that are appropriate, that are permitted, that have a God-honoring goal. History records from us that a thief could become a slave in order to pay back in time what he had stolen. We also learned that freed persons could sell themselves into slavery knowing that they could later regain their freedom. Some sold themselves into slavery for a better life, for an education, for the opportunity to learn a trade. If one country was conquered by another country, the country that was conquered would become slaves to the country who conquered them. And in a sense, that was deemed to be somewhat appropriate, especially better than the alternative of what could happen if your country got conquered. The Hebrew people in Leviticus chapter 25 were told to not make slaves out of their brothers. Israelites were also allowed to buy slaves from other nations. Again, Leviticus 25, in the year of Jubilee, all slaves were to be set free. A slave who fled from an oppressive master was to be granted protection and asylum, Deuteronomy 23. And then last that we talked about last week is that there's a, a kind of slavery allowed by Scripture that was to be a blessing and controlled by love, where the servant himself would, would, uh, would commit himself to his master for the rest of his life as being totally committed to him as a bond servant. And so furthermore, we also discussed how the New Testament teaches that slaves are called to obey their earthly masters. So when you get into the New Testament, there is a little bit more of an emphasis on, uh, on the idea that if you're in a slave situation, hopefully it's an appropriate one. But even if it's not an appropriate one, there's the idea that you're supposed to just submit to what you're in. Now, where does the New Testament talk about you need to, to you know, be a rebel rouser and you need to get up and go against your master? It just simply calls for obedience. Slaves are called to obey their earthly masters. They're called to, to, to show them honor. Uh, slaves are called, 1 Corinthians 7, to stay in the condition they were in when they were saved. Unless there was a legal and God-honoring way to obtain their freedom. In addition to all this, we talked about how in the New Testament, Christ is our identity. Not our ethnicity, not our social status, and not even our gender. In fact, all of those things are de-emphasized in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the idea, again, of the New Testament is quit placing so much emphasis on what job status you have, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Those things all have important distinctives, but none of them are as important as being a Christian because we're one in Christ. And so in Christ, we must all learn what it means, Jesus said, to be a slave to all, to be a servant to all. In Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin, 
but we are slaves to righteousness. And so we need to be thinking about what it means to be a slave to righteousness for God's glory. And this is where we kind of fill in this week of Ephesians 6, now that we've kind of tackled the whole slave subject. Uh, what I want to talk to you about this morning is not whether or not slavery should be abolished, because I think any ungodly slavery should be abolished, but whether or not there's a place in a system such as this bondservant system where it's appropriate, what does that look like in our culture today? And obviously, I think it looks like the employer-employee relationship. That you're an employer if you're the boss, you're an employee if you work at a company, and you work, you work there, you're to obey your boss. And so the idea is this morning, let's think of it in regards to that as we are going to seek a little bit of per, uh, personal application, knowing that the job that, uh, that you work is an opportunity for you to honor God, right? So in the morning, when you go to work this week to that job you love, so that you can't wait till Monday morning rolls around. Why are you guys looking at me like that? that you'll be able to go to work with these principles in mind, all right? So this morning, we're talking about spirit-filled slavery, and we're going to look at two simple headings. Number one, how to be a spirit-filled slave, and then number two, how to be a spirit-filled master, okay? We'll start off with how to be a spirit-filled slave, and in verses five through seven, we're going to look at slaves' responsibilities to their masters, Slaves have specific responsibilities to their masters. There's at least seven of them mentioned here. So your first blank, if you're taking notes, is this. Number one, consistently obey your master at all times. Again, look at verse five. Bond servants, again, the word doulos, literally translated as slaves, obey your earthly masters. And so we see here there's to be this idea of that we are to obey. It is a command. It is in the present active imperative. It is not up for discussion. It's not like you can get to work and say, well, I'll choose to obey these parts of my boss's, you know, agenda for me today, but the rest of it I'm not going to do. No, we are called to obey those over us, our earthly masters. We're hinting already at the idea there's a heavenly master that we ultimately submit to, but you got a boss, a man or a woman with flesh and blood that you must obey. There's really only one exception to that. And you know what that is if they're asking you to sin, right? If your boss is asking you to do something that's clearly illegal, you serve a bigger boss in heaven, right? You serve a heavenly master, and you never have to carry out a sinful act just because your earthly boss asks you to. I remember when I worked in cardiovascular and thoracic surgery, I had a, a heart surgeon who asked me at times, we worked at three different hospitals, and so I, part of my job was to write uh, discharge notes and, uh, and then to go into medical records to make sure all of our notes while they were in the hospital had been signed. And so he asked me, he's like, hey, Adam, I don't have time to get to every hospital. When you're in there, you go to these medical record offices, pull all the charts out, and just sign my name. Just sign my name. And so I, I kind of did that a few times, and then my conscience just started bothering me. I'm like, I can't sign his name. He's supposed to be signing his own name to this. And so we talked about it. And he's like, no, I mean, you can sign my name. It's okay. I'm giving you permission. I said, hey, look, I serve, a, I serve a boss bigger than you. I, as a Christian, I can't with a clear conscience sign, my na sign your name anymore. And he said, well, then, then, you know, as your boss, I may have to let you go. And I said, then fire me because I'm not signing your name anymore. He's like, okay, I'll go sign my name. Right? You know? <laughs> so sometimes you got to just stand up, right, to your boss. And if you get fired, you get fired. I'm sure some of you could tell the story, same story, and you did get fired. So I'm not saying that it's always easy, but you got to stand up for somebody even bigger than your earthly master, and that's God. But we all understand that most of the time, hopefully, our boss isn't actually asking us to sin. And so we need to obey our boss whether you like them or not. 
whether it's a man or a woman, whether you think it's fair or unfair, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat, whether they voted for Donald Trump or not. Right, who cares? The idea is you obey your boss and you do it in the Lord's. Right, number two, second thing a slave has a responsibility to do is this, dutifully respect your master who is over you. We're called not only to obey them, but to respect them. Here in verse 5, it says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. The word here for fear is the word fear, phobos, the idea of true fear, but it has the idea of respect. There's a little bit of respect going on here, but there's also this trembling literally means shaking or quivering. So there's an utmost respect for this position. It kind of reminds me a little bit of my dog. If she does something bad and I come in the room and I'm upset, and she begins to just shake and quiver. So I kick her out the door. No, I don't do that. I don't do that. Right? But the idea is like that. The, the idea is that there needs to be a respect for our boss, for the one who's over us, because the, because the Bible calls for it. It says that we ought to respect them, we ought to obey them again with fear and trembling. That phrase, fear and trembling, is used in three other occurrences outside of our immediate context. It's used in the context of preaching Christ crucified to the Corinthians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. In other words, it's something important that Paul was doing. He's preaching the gospel, and he did so with fear and trembling. The second place it's used outside of this context is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, where Paul actually tells the Corinthians that they need to accept the teaching that Titus had been giving to them. And he said, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. He's actually commending them for receiving Titus with great respect with fear and with trembling. The third place it's used outside of this context is in Philippians 2.12, where Paul is challenging the church of Philippi. That verse says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. In other words, whether I'm here to watch what you guys are doing or I'm gone, you're supposed to be working out your salvation and your obedience every day with fear and trembling, with great respect, with the idea that you're honoring what God's word says. And so it's kind of in that same way we see the seriousness of here in verse 5 of Ephesians 6 of Paul saying, look, you got to obey your boss and you got to do that with fear and trembling. And by the way, this is consistent with the flow that we've been going through, right? Of Ephesians, we've been in the section about walking in wisdom. Ephesians 5.21 says you do that by submitting to one another. Ephesians uh, 5.22 says by wives submitting to their husbands. Ephesians 6.1, children obeying their parents. And now Ephesians 6.5, servants submitting to and obeying your master. So in every situation, there's an authority and there's someone who's subject to that authority. And the one who's subject to that authority is called to submit to them and to obey them as unto the Lord. And that's really the key, right? The idea is that you want to honor them with all of your heart. In fact, look at the next one. Number three, another responsibility slaves would have is to sincerely honor your master from your heart. Here in verse five, it says, with a sincere heart, right? So sincerity of heart could also be translated singleness of heart. It has the idea of saying what you mean, not being duplicitous. It means that you are straightforward, that you speak the simple and the pure truth. It means that you are speaking without a hidden meaning. 
This phrase, with a sincere heart, means that servants should obey their masters wholeheartedly or completely. In other words, you can't disobey them externally, just like we've talked about a child needs to submit to his mom and dad from his heart, right? It's not glorifying to God if you're obeying externally, but inside you're cursing your parents under your breath. Well, in the same way, it doesn't honor God as, as an employee. You're at work, and you're doing whatever the boss says, but then in your heart, you really are not caring for your boss. You're really not uh, being honest with your boss. Maybe you're even kissing up to your boss just so that you can get a promotion. You're not really speaking the truth. You need to be obeying your boss just like you obey the Lord from your heart. The heart is the seat of your feelings, your emotions, and your will. And you're to do what you do out of your love for Christ and your desire to worship Christ even while you're at work. While you're at work, there's no separation here between the secular and the sacred. God's watching you. He knows your motive. He knows what you're thinking. Which is why 1 Timothy 6.1 says, Let all of you who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. See, it's your Christian witness that is is at stake in how you're working at work. Are you honoring the boss man, the boss woman? Are you honoring them in how you're working? Look at number four here, reverently submit to your master as you would Christ. Verse five, again, the end of verse five says, as you would Christ, right? That's the mindset. The mindset is this person stands in the position of Christ over you in the sense of they are in direct authority over you telling you what to do and you should treat that person just like you would treat the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what if you did get to work in the morning instead of your boss being there, it was Jesus. And he asked you to do this, 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 and this. And usually if it was your boss, you would have kind of rolled your eyes. Kind of like, oh, come on, man. There's no way we can get all that done this week. Would you act that way to Christ? Or would you submit to Christ in a God-honoring way? And that's all that, that we're being asked to do here, submit to our boss as we would to Christ. And it gives you an opportunity to represent the Lord. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And it goes on to talk about that's a way that you can be a witness for Christ. That's how you broadcast the glory of God in the workplace. You say, well, Adam, uh, at work, they won't let us talk about religion. They won't let me witness with my faith. Then witness with your work. Work so hard that people are drawn to you as a person with respect. And eventually, I believe your boss probably will ask you something. Like, hey, why do you always work so hard? Or thanks for working so hard. And, And somewhere in those kind of conversations, you might be able to reflect the glory of God of explaining what you do why you do what you do. I mean, you can mark it down. If they know that you're a Christian and you're a slacker, they're not attracted to your faith. But if they know that you're a Christian and you outwork everybody else in the office with dignity and with hard work, then they're going to respect the God you serve. And this leads us to our fifth responsibility here. Number five, diligently work for your master with integrity. Verse 6 continues to bear down on us here with these responsibilities that we have as employees to our employers, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Well, there you have it. The word eye service means to serve with a view of impressing others. Kiss up to the boss, what you're thinking, right? You're just trying to make them like you more and see what you do. And, and, and the, the, the idea of people pleasers obviously is fearing man. 
uh, it, it literally, it, it would be those who have no interest in their real work, but only aim at making a favorable impression on their boss. Does that describe you? Are you kind of loafing around until the boss shows up, and all of a sudden you're like, you know, oh, yeah, we're working hard. Just a few minutes ago, you were just kind of goofing off, checking Facebook, checking the menu of the restaurant you're going to go to lunch, what you're going to eat, what you're going to do when you get home, who's playing tonight in the Final Four championship. I know what you guys are doing out there. All right, so, I mean, the idea is that we got to be careful that we're working, especially if we work on a clock, right? It's a little bit different if you're the owner of your company, and we're going to get to that in a minute. I mean, there, there's freedoms that maybe you can have, but if you're on the clock, and you're getting paid for 60 minutes, you ought to be working 60 minutes. Now, obviously, jobs are required to give 15-minute breaks or a 30-minute break. I, I don't know what the latest regulation is, but there's appropriate breaks that are in there that you're welcome to take. Uh, it may be that your boss on occasion, you know, gives you, uh, lets you leave early or whatever. That's all fine. But the idea is that when you're there working, you've got to be working. In fact, I did a little research this week. I don't have it in front of me, but several different articles about the inefficiency of today's workplace. And the worst one I read said that in some companies, up to 50% of the workday was wasted on the internet, on people talking and shooting the breeze at the water cooler, on personal Facebook and, and uh, other sources of social media. One, one person estimated up to half of the workday in some businesses is a complete waste. Well, that ought not be. Even if your company is slack, and they're allowing that to happen, which I, I don't think any company would just knowingly allow that to happen. But if they were, you are to set an example. And you're to do it for the glory of Christ, not just so that you can somehow impress your boss. Remember, it's the Lord that you're er ultimately working for. Let's move on. Number six, another responsibility would be this. Faithfully demonstrate to your master a Christian testimony. Isn't this what we're talking about? But you're to, to, to uh, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as what? Bond servants of Christ. So that's, that's who we are. We're to demonstrate a Christian testimony. I belong to Christ. I mean, a Christian man or woman ought to want to hire you. I talked to a Christian, Christian businessman in Houston where I worked, and he told me, he said, Adam, I would never hire a Christian. I said, why not? He said, because all the Christians I hire, when they find out I'm a Christian, they begin slacking off at work because they know I'm going to probably maybe give them grace. And so they start to underperform instead of really do their best job. But I have some unbelievers who work around the clock for me. You know, I thought, what a shame. What a shame that you would have a Christian businessman who says he actually doesn't hire Christians for the very fact that in his experience, they've been less workers instead of harder workers. May that not be true of you today. May you be faithful. Now, I'm not asking all of you to be workaholics and you're there two hours before the boss gets there and two hours before, you know, after he leaves because then you're going to be in trouble at home, right? Your wife's going to be like, what are you doing? All right, so there's a balance to it all, but the idea is you want to be faithful. You want to be known as working super hard. And this is a way, again, you're demonstrating your Christian testimony, the fact that you're actually a slave to Christ, you're not ultimately a slave to the system or to the company or to your boss and what he says. You're a slave to Christ. You belong to him, which is why Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? 
Now, again, that has to do with our general Christian walk. We don't want to be slaves to sin. We're slaves to Christ. But if you are a slave to Christ, you're going to demonstrate that in all behavior and in all conversations at your workplace. So be faithful. One of the best ways, I think, to be a Christian witness in the world, again, is by being a hard worker. Guaranteed, if you're a hard worker, people will ask questions. You'll be, have an opportunity to share Christ more than you would if you're a bad worker that nobody respects. You're never going to have an opportunity to point people to Christ. Kind of reminds me of an illustration I've heard a few times. It's been used uh, for, for many years, a modern parable, really, that captures this in a sense. There were three workmen building a cathedral who were questioned by a visitor as to what they were doing. The first one answered, I am chipping away at these stones. The second answered, I'm earning wages. The third answered, I am building a great cathedral. It's just kind of the mindset of that you're doing what you're doing as unto the Lord for God's glory. So when the people ask, why do you do what you do? What drives you so? That they'll know it's not just to be successful. It's not just to get ahead. It's not just that, so that your company has a larger return that year, right? It's you're doing what you're doing because you're living for Christ. And this leads us to our seventh and final responsibility a slave has towards a master. Wholeheartedly serve your master with a good attitude, right? It's to be done with your whole heart, doing the will of God from the heart. And we've addressed this already. It can't just be done half-heartedly. It's got to be done with the right heart, this word goodwill, as in serving with a goodwill as unto the Lord. It's found only here in the entire New Testament. The word goodwill here in this verse, only here to emphasize the nature of your heart at work. That you do it in a benevolent way, in a kind way, in a generous way. That you do it faithfully. That you have a respect for what it is that you do. It kind of reminds me too, we don't have time to turn there, but you can jot down Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 14 to 30 is the parable of the talents. Remember there was a master had three slaves. The first, the first one had, uh, was given five talents. The second one given two talents. The last one given one talent. And after a long time, the master returns home and he goes up to the guy who gave five talents and he had worked hard and invested and made five more talents. So he had doubled his, his, uh, his responsibility. The second one had two talents. He doubled his, his. He had two more. The last one had one talent and he had buried it in the ground and did nothing with it. And when the banker got back, he said, you wicked servant, that you've been slothful like a sluggard. Why didn't you at least invest it in the bank and you could have got interest? In other words, the whole idea behind that parable is you use what God has given you to the glory of Christ. And you don't be a slacker. And you don't be one who, who makes excuses for why you're not working hard. Instead, you do what you do as unto the Lord. You may say, well, what if I'm a stay-at-home mom? What if I don't have a formal job? But what do I do then? Well, I appreciate what John Stott wrote in his commentary on this passage. It is possible for a housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were going to be the honored guest. He goes on to say, it is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit audit books, and secretaries to type letters if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. In other words, whoever, whoever it is that you see, whoever you're serving, that could be that favorite person, that least favorite person at work, you see them as Christ and treat them as such. 
Now, a little closer look, if I can, B in your outline, is, is a little closer look at the eternal reward. Slaves of Christ will receive an eternal reward. Look at verse 8, where we read, where it says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So there is a motivation given here of this eternal reward that you're going to receive back from God. So look at these points here, if you, if you will. Number one, our reward comes from the Lord. Okay? Ultimately, you're doing what you're doing, not just to get a paycheck. You're doing what you're doing as unto the Lord because you know he will repay you for your hard work. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built is on the foundation uh, survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, I think that ultimately has to do with your Christian walk, your testimony, your life of faith. But isn't it true, if you have a Christian walk and a life of faith, honoring to the Lord, it's going to evidence itself in where you spend the second largest quantity of your time, other than with your family, is at work. So it does matter what you do at work, evidences whether or not you're a mature Christian, whether or not you love Christ. And what you're doing is you're ultimately reminding yourself, you know what, there's a reward in heaven for me. Ultimately, our reward is salvation, Christ. But also, in addition to that, there is the motivation given here of living faithfully to receive additional rewards. Number two, our reward doesn't always come in this lifetime. Don't think just because you do work hard for the rest of your life and you're faithful in your job that you're going to finally get that huge raise or promotion or become the owner of your own company. You may not. You, you may always just work hard and faithful and kind of be in the same level of work your whole life, and that's fine. Because to God, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what status you're in. What matters is, is are you honoring God at work? That's what matters. Which is why 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our main objective, again, is to be pleasing to the Lord. Whatever you do in your life, and a big part of that is what you're doing at work, ought to be done pleasing to the Lord because you will receive one day uh, remuneration of some kind for what you've done. Third, our reward is better than anything we could receive in this lifetime. You know, in this lifetime, the best it gets is a huge raise, a nice bonus, the promotion, more time off, whatever, that could be the biggest thing that you could look forward to in this earth, but we know there's something better than that, better than any raise or reward you could ever receive from your boss in this lifetime is the reward offered by God, which, by the way, what did God say to those two servants who doubled their money? He said, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the word you're really looking for. Not at the end of the day that boss saying, good job, while that's nice, and I think that, that there's an appropriate level of, of commending each other and looking for commendation to a degree, but ultimately, it's about Christ. It's about doing what we do for Christ. Isn't it interesting that in this very context, in the parallel passage of Colossians 3, here's what it says, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily 
as for the Lord and not for man. It's in the context of work. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord, not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let that be your motivation. If you feel like you're underpaid, just know that Christ pays pretty good in heaven. If you feel like you're underappreciated, just know that Christ says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What are you living for? This earth or heaven? And if you're living for heaven, then these principles begin to encourage us and to actually make us look forward to going to work because we have an opportunity to do what God's called us to do, to be a witness for Christ while we're at work. Now, all that describes what it's like to be a spirit-filled slave. Notice our second major heading is, what does it look like to be a spirit-filled master? And there's just one verse left in this unit about how to be a spirit-filled master. In verse 9, masters do the same to them. I'll just stop right there. Masters' responsibilities, they have responsibilities to their slave. Uh, The next click there on the PowerPoint and your first blank, number one, treat your workers with kindness and respect. In other words, he's saying, look, just like they took care of, uh, just like slaves are called to work hard for their masters, masters are supposed to be working hard for their slaves. Masters, your boss, is supposed to be working hard for the employee, which is why, again, in the flow of the passage, after it addresses wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, it then says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. After the Bible addresses children, obey your parents in the Lord, he then addresses parents in 6.4, fathers, do not provoke your child to anger. And so after he's addressed the, the, the subordinate one, the slave or the servant, he now addresses the master and says, look, you're supposed to love them in the same way. In the same way, you're to treat them with kindness and with respect. You're commanded here, number two, to stop threatening and taking advantage of those who serve you. That's the temptation of the boss. Well, I'll just take advantage of this. I'll make them work harder for less pay. Or I will manipulate them with my words and my threats to make them do what I want them to do. Well, this ought not be. A a boss has no right to be threatening his workers. This word threaten is is used uh, even in 1 Peter 2.23 when it says about Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten but continued him, uh, entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, you're not to threat, threaten your employees about what, they're, what they can do or what they can't do. You can't use that power to your advantage. You're to be humble. You're to be a God-honoring man, a God-honoring woman who is valuing the people who work for you. This is why Leviticus 25, again, one of the Old Testament chapters about slavery, says, you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. And so masters have a responsibility of how to be a spirit-filled master. B, here in your outline, masters for Christ need to dwell on two eternal truths. Two more things here in verse 9. Number one, God is the ultimate master of both slaves and masters. That's why it says, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, hey, even though you're the big boss at work, you're still under God. Even though you're the the master, you're the supervisor, you own the company, you still answer to God. So you better be careful how you live because God is the ultimate master of you. We're created in the image of God. We're equal before God in our value and our dignity. God looks at our soul, not at our earthly status. 
I read this week about how R.C. Sproul, well-known pastor and conference speaker, was speaking to some executives of a large corporation, and they were uneasy about his linking religion with business. Eventually, he caught the understanding and the enthusiasm of the board chairman. This man said, let me see if I can connect what you're saying. What I hear is that our business life is affected by how we treat people. Then he said, how we treat people is a matter of ethics. Ethics are determined by our philosophy. Our philosophy reflects our theology. So respecting people is really a theological matter. Absolutely right. right? It's how you treat others that shows what you think about God and what you think about being under God's rule and God's word in a way that would call us to treat others with kindness, knowing that God is our ultimate boss. And so number two, God does not show partiality based on your position. God's not going to give you some extra measure of grace or patience just because you're the boss. Acts 10.34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Romans 2.11, for God shows no partiality. And James 2.9, but, but if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So God shows no partiality towards us based on our status. We shouldn't expect to be showing or giving partiality to others. This is what it means to be a spirit-filled slave and to be a spirit-filled master. This ought to change the way we approach the work week if we're really hearing and applying these principles. In fact, look at this take-home section with me, if you will. Number one there, submitting to and obeying your boss at work could be the biggest witnessing opportunity you will ever get. If you're scared and you don't know how to get into a a gospel-centered conversation with your boss, just work faithfully. And as you work faithfully year after year after year, I believe that that boss at some point is going to ask you why it is that you do what you do. Or at least they're willing to listen to you because they know you're a hard worker and they have respect for that. And then you have an opportunity, Lord willing, to be a witness for Christ. Secondly, the ultimate reward that we are working for comes not from this world, but from our true slave master. You got to check yourself on this and make sure you're not just working hard again for the bonus or for the raise, that you're working hard as unto Christ. Whether you never get that raise or never get that bonus or nobody ever notices what you do, you're working for your true master who is Christ. And then last, the best way to be a good boss is by being a good servant. Jesus says, if you want to be first, you got to be willing to last, be last, that you got to be willing to be a servant of all, a slave to all, it's servant leadership, right, that you consider others as better than yourselves and you serve them. God help us to be spirit-filled slaves, servants for the master. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would just help us think through this uh, passage a little bit. There's so many very handy and readily available truths, practical truths about how a servant, how a slave ought to live, how we ought to live as a master or as a boss. So I pray, God, that you give our people here in this church today a, a God sense of how to be uh, acting and functioning at their workplace. God, would you allow us to, to work hard for the bosses that are over us, to, to be faithful bosses to those who work under us. May we do it all by looking to Christ realizing that we all belong to you, 
that we all are under the ultimate master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to you that we ultimately submit and obey. So help us to live out those truths in the workplace this week and for the rest of our life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.